Lord, would you please bring the glorious truth that this promise gives to us. Would you please bring it in all of your power to your peoples? Seal it to their hearts, Lord. Give them the ability to hear and apply the truth of this verse to their life, that it would have a transforming effect. We pray for transformative power through your word today, Lord, by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. In 2 Peter 1.4, Peter talks about precious and magnificent promises. And today we're going to consider one of the most precious and most magnificent promises in the Bible. If I were to think of the greatest promise in the Bible for the lost, I would think of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. If you're a lost person, that's a precious and magnificent promise. But if you're a Christian, I would submit to you the greatest promise in Scripture is this one. This is for believers. This isn't for the world. This isn't for the lost. These are, this promise here is for those who love and know and believe in Jesus Christ. But I would also urge you not to let familiarity bring contempt. We know this verse so well that it's easy just to say, oh, I know that one. Let's go on to the next verse. Without really thinking about what the verse includes. The re there's a reason why this verse is so popular, why it's so famous. It's almost as famous as John 3.16. <laughs> and there's a reason. It's because it's so powerful. So let's, let's look again with fresh <laughs> eyes at the, the glorious truth that God has for us here. This promise is like a jeweler who lifts up a diamond because he wants to show a prospective client the beauty of the gem, and, and the, the buyer looks at it from this angle, and then this angle, and then this angle. Five different angles looking at that diamond to see its glory. This promise, I'm gonna, I'm gonna lift it up in five different angles for you this morning. I wanna show you the core of the promise, the certainty of the promise, the cause of the promise, the completeness of the promise and the community of the promise. Five different angles. <laughs> so let's look at it. The core of the promise. What If you took this promise and boiled it down to its irreducible minimum, what is at the very core of Romans 8.28? And I would submit to you it's this. All things work together for good. Now we'll talk about more than that, but that's the core. All things work together for good. Now we need to understand what this Verses not teaching. This verse is not teaching us that all things are good. But it doesn't say that. It doesn't say all, it says all things are working together for good, but not necessarily everything is good in and of itself and by itself. In other words, war, generally speaking, is not good. Blasphemy is not good. Adultery, sex trafficking, rape. Murder, lying, sin, drug addiction, those things are not good. But God is able to use all those things. He's able to work all those things in a believer's life together for good. However those things might touch his life. Hopefully they're not happening personally in his life. But they touch his life. They affect his life. And God can use all those things for good. Now, remember the larger context. When we come to Romans 8.28, we need to be thinking from Romans 8.17 through 8.27. And what has gone before those 10, 11 verses? Well, let's go back to verse 17. 
Paul says, if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs of Christ, if indeed we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Think about that last part of verse 17. If we suffer with him, so that we may also be glorified with him. Paul's point in verses 17 to 27 is he's talking about present sufferings for the Christian in light of the future glory that is to come. And that's why he says in verse 18, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And then he launches into this explanation of how creation has been subjected to futility. Now we live in a sin-cursed world. The animal kingdom and the plant kingdom, even though we see beauty in it, it's been cursed by, because of man's sin. We're waiting for God to fully redeem this world. And in verse 23, he says that we are redeemed people but live in unredeemed bodies. And so we're waiting anxiously. We're groaning in these bodies because of our sin and because of our suffering. We're waiting to be fully redeemed. And then in verses 26 and 27, he says, we don't even know what we should pray for at times. We don't know the will of God. We pray for prosperity when God wants to give us trials. You know, we, we pray for the wrong things, but we have an indwelling Holy Spirit who knows the will of God and prays <coughs> for us according to his will continually. So this is the context. Present suffering, but looking forward to future glory and then he says, we know that God works all things. All, the all things here includes all your suffering, all your grief, all your pain, all your trials. It includes all of that because God is going to use it for future glory. So Paul's not saying that all things are good. He's also not saying that all things will turn out for good right now in this lifetime. And sometimes we interpret the verse like that going. And someone says, oh, I just lost my job. I can't believe it. And we tell them, well, don't worry. Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good. God's just going to give you a better job. That's why you lost this job. Or someone may break up with their, their fiance and they're devastated. And we say, well, don't worry. Romans 8, 28. God has got a better spouse for you than this one. You know, but I think that's a misapplication of Romans 8, 28. Because if you look at the context of verse 29 and 30, he's not talking about the here and now. Verses 29 and 30 are God's sweeping eternal plan from eternity past to eternity future. Let's read it. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for, because... Here's an explanation of what I just said in verse 28. For those whom he foreknew, those are the ones that are called according to his purpose. Those are the ones he foreknew. He also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, that he, Jesus, would be the firstborn among many brethren. So what is the good of verse 28? It's explained in verse 29. It's being conformed to the image of God's son. And that's not all, because if you keep reading... He says in verse 30, And these whom he predestined, he also called, which takes us back to being called according to his purpose. He has the same thought in mind here. These whom he predestined, he also called. And these whom he called, he also justified. And these whom he justified, he also glorified. So this is God's sweeping eternal plan for his church, for his people. 
He foreknew them. He set his love upon them from eternity past. Then he came up with a predestined plan to make them just like Jesus. Then he called them. Then he justified them, gave them right standing. And then he glorifies them. So the good of verse 28 has to do with being glorified together with Christ in eternity. And it has to be made, it has to do with being made just like Jesus Christ and conformed to his image. So everything in your life, God allows it or ordains it because he's moving you in this trajectory towards glory. He's moving you towards eternal union with Christ and eternal conformity to Jesus Christ. So that's the good in this passage. It's not having a better job or having a better spouse. It's God making you just like Jesus and uniting him, you to him forever. So God is not committed to making you rich or healthy, contrary to what some preachers may tell you. That's not his ultimate goal for you, to make you completely comfortable in this life. In fact, that probably is, is not his will. Because we get so much closer to Christ through trials than we do through everything being pleasant and easy in our lives. So no, it's not God's will to make you healthy and rich and wealthy, but it is His will to make you like your son, Jesus Christ. And whatever it takes for God to do that in your life is good. There is an Old Testament parallel to Romans 8.28, and it comes to us in Genesis chapter 50. Do you remember the story of Joseph? Joseph went through a lot of suffering in his life. When he was only, I believe he was 17 years old, his brothers hated him and they sold him to some Midianite traders. They sold him into slavery. And so at 17 years old, Joseph becomes a slave. He's taken down to Egypt where he's put into a home where he, uh, he's the overseer of the home, but he's accused of rape by the owner's wife, falsely accused. And he's accused of that. He's put in prison. He ends up being in prison for 12 years for something that he never did. He's languishing away year after year in prison. He tells two people their dreams, the cupbearer and the baker. The cupbearer is restored to his office. And he says, don't worry, I won't forget about you. I'll tell you, I'll tell about you to the king. But he forgets for two years. So for two years more, Joseph is languishing away in prison. So he's gone through all kinds of suffering. But at the end of his life, Joseph looks back over it all. And we find this in Genesis 50, verse 20. He says to his, his family, as for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. In order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. So Joseph was able to see with God's vision, God's perspective, why the trial, why the suffering, why the anguish? Because God had a plan, and God was going to use Joseph to fulfill that plan. His family would have starved to death without someone in Egypt who had stored up all this grain and dispensed it to all the people during the seven years of famine. So this is the Old Testament parallel to Romans 8.28. Now, if you think about ordinary table salt, table salt is made up of sodium and chloride, two elements. Both of those are poisonous if you ingest them by themselves in sufficient quantities. They'll kill you. <laughs> but if you put them together 
in the right quantities, they become something, become something very beneficial to you. Salt preserves meat. It's been doing that for centuries, and it adds flavor to our food. In fact, all of us need a certain amount of salt within our bodily systems. It's good for us. But it, sodium by itself is not good for you, and chloride by itself is not good for you. God does the same thing. He takes things in our life that we would not call good. We would call them bad. But God works them together in the right proportions, at the right time, in the right place, and he works those things together to bring about a good result, a positive, beneficial result in our lives. I made buttermilk pancakes this morning. It's the second time in my life I've done it. Debbie always makes them, but she wrote out the recipe and I decided to try it because I like pancakes. <laughs> Put in some blueberries and make them even better. But what I, what I discovered is that all the ingredients in buttermilk pancakes, okay, think about it, buttermilk. How many of you like just chugging? Well, some of you might, but drinking buttermilk, you do. Okay, I, I cannot stand buttermilk by itself. <laughs> Or how many of you like just raw eggs? Just eat a raw egg by itself. Or oil, the cooking oil. Just I'll have a glass of oil. <laughs> um, baking powder. You ever, ever tasted baking powder by itself? Or baking soda? Or just have a, have a, a teaspoon of salt. Boy, won't that taste good. <laughs> if you eat those things alone, they taste terrible. But if you mix them together in the right proportions and then bake or cook them or fry them on a griddle, it comes out something delicious. And that's the same thing God does with Romans 8.28. He takes all these bad, painful sufferings in our life, and he mixes them together and brings something good out of them. See, what we're talking about in Romans 8.28 is the providence of God. I don't know if you've ever heard that word. It's a theological word, the providence of God. And what that means is God's overruling hand at work everywhere in a fallen world to bring about his eternal purposes. It's God's overruling hand at work in a fallen world everywhere to bring about his purposes. God is at work in 10 million ways around this world, ordering and overruling and directing circumstances that are taking place and directing them towards his end. I don't know how he does that. How, <laughs> you see how wise God must be. We were singing about God's wisdom this morning. How wise, how unfathomable must be the wisdom of God to be able to order these circumstances and situations to bring about good, beneficial results. It's, it's amazing to me. So what we learn from Romans 8.28 is that the circumstances in our life are not controlled by chance or fate or luck. Those are all words that the world uses. That's not, what, that's not what we find in Scripture. Instead, we find that all these things come about in our life by a loving Heavenly Father who meets them out to us in the right proportions. It's like Esmeralda with her baby. She wouldn't put poison in her bottle. She would, she would give her healthy milk that the baby is going to be nourished by and grow. And so the things that God allows into our life are things for our health, for our benefit. I read this week, and I thought it was good. We should erect a sign over all the unexplained mysteries in our life. Quiet. God at work. God is at work. Now, I don't understand it. It's unexplained to me, but I know God's working. 
because I know Romans 8.28 is true. So our danger is that we judge what we can't see by what we can see. When a tragedy strikes us, if we can't see that there's a purpose in it, we assume there is no purpose. And that's not true. We just don't know what that purpose is as of that time. So what we should do is judge what we can see by what we can't see. Let's judge by what we do see by God, the unseen God, and His character revealed in Holy Scripture. So there we have the core of the promise. All things are working together for good. Now, let's look at the certainty of the promise. Scripture says, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good. He doesn't say, we think, or we wish, or we hope. He's not talking about guesswork or speculation. He speaks with certainty, doesn't he? We know this. We know it. How did he know it? I think he knew it at least in part from verses 26 and 27. He knew that the indwelling Holy Spirit was interceding for him in all circumstances of his life according to the will of God. And because that's happening, he knew that all the things that God is bringing into his life are according to his will for him. And they would work together for good. So we should never doubt this promise in Romans 8, 28. Paul says, we know. Paul included himself here. We Myself and you, we know that God causes all things to work together for good. Let's believe it with all our hearts. Thirdly, the cause of the promise. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good. God causes. Now, I realize that there are different translations if you check a King James Version versus New American Standard versus New International Version, you're going to see three different translations. And the reason we have them is because there is a, a small variant in some of the early Greek manuscripts. And you can, you can translate a Greek statement in various ways into English. So let me just give you the, the three possibilities. The King James translates it, all things work together for good. The New American Standard, God causes all things to work together for good. The New International Version, in all things, God works for the good. But the, the great thing about it is that all these three verses, there's substantially no major difference at all. They're saying the same thing in different words. One says that God is the one causing all things. The others don't include that. Uh, the King James simply says all things are working together for good. But if that's true, if, if the right translation is all things work together for good, why are all things working together for good? Is it just that they happen to work together for good on their own by chance? Of course not. We all know that, that the reason that they are working together for good is because God is behind those things and he's the one orchestrating all things to bring about a good result, right? So let's take the new, the new American Standard Version. And we know that God causes. God causes. This tells us that God is over all things. God controls all things, all things can't work for good unless God controls all things, right? 
That makes sense to me. We're not talking about fatalism. We're not talking about determinism. We're talking about an all-wise, all-loving, almighty, heavenly Father who loves his children and is determined to bring about their good. And he's going to use all the circumstances of life to do it. I read about a shipwreck where there was only one survivor. He was washed up on a deserted island. And so he was trying to figure out, well, what do I do now? He, He decided to make himself a temporary hut. And then he went out scavenging for food on the island, trying to find something just to keep himself alive. At the end of a long day, he came back to his hut and he saw that it was in flames. Smoke billowing into the sky. And he turned and he said, God, how could you do this to me? How could you? Lord, how could you do this to me? Well, the next morning he was awoken by rescuers. And he said, how did you know I was here? And they said, we saw your smoke signals. You see, God is able to overrule all things for his glory. So there we have the the cause of the promise. We we find that God is the one that is behind all things, working all things. What about the completeness of the promise? And we know that God causes all things, all things, not some things or even most things. But the scripture says all. And I'm just going to accept that for what it says. Everything, everything. This is utterly comprehensive. There's no limits put on this. There's no restrictions. There's no conditions. There's absolutely nothing that we face that's not under God's control and God's direction. That includes everything that people say about you, things that people do to you that are evil and unkind. It includes every problem you face, every trial, every pain, every joy, every pleasure, every sickness, heartache, disappointment, every persecution you face, all things. And it's no wonder then that in 1 Corinthians 3, verses 21 to 23, Paul can say this, so then let us, I'm sorry, so then let no one boast in men for all things belong to you. Whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death, or things present, or things to come, all things belong to you, Christian. I threw that in, Christian. (laughs) All things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Think about that, believer. All things belong to you. He says something similar in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 15. Paul says, for all things are for your sakes, so that the grace which is spreading to more and more people may cause the giving of thanks to abound to the glory of God. All things are for your sakes. All things belong to you. He's making a point. I think he's making the point of Romans 8.28. All things are working together for good. That's why they're for your sakes. That's why they belong to you. Because God is going to do great and mighty and wonderful things through them for you. If you go back to Romans 8, let's look at the context. What kinds of things are working together for good according to verse 35? Tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, peril, sword. 
All those things working together for your good. Or verse 38. What else? Death, life, angels, principalities, things present, things to come, powers, height, depth, or any other created thing, whatever it is. None of those things can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord, because all of them are working together for our good and being united to Jesus Christ forever is God's eternal plan for his church. And so all these things are bringing us towards that end. So you and I never have to worry that something is going to come into your life that just slips past God and he doesn't see it coming. Never. Even when Satan wants to tempt uh, or to, to wreak havoc in Job's life or to sift Peter's faith, he has to come and get permission from God to do that. God must grant permission. And God's only going to grant permission for Satan to do that if he sees the end picture and knows that it's for the good of Job or for the good of Peter. So there's the completeness of the promise. Pretty, pretty all-inclusive, wouldn't you say? All things. Now, finally, the community of this promise. And what I mean by that is, who is this promise for? Who are the beneficiaries of Romans 8.28? He tells us very specifically, doesn't he? To those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Those who love God, that's the human perspective of the promise. That's human experience. We love God. Called according to his purpose. There's the divine perspective. Now, why do you think Paul describes who this promise is good for in two different ways? He could have just used one or the other. He could have said that all things work together for good to those who love God, period. End of sentence. But he doesn't. He adds to those called according to his purpose. If God had only said that this is good for those who love God, I think that he would be trying to support this massive promise on a flimsy foundation. Because our love for God, even though it is real, is often wavering and, and can be fickle. And sometimes it's strong, sometimes it's weak, right? It's not a sufficient ground for this massive promise that all things are working together for good. But what if God had simply said, all things work together for good to those who are called according to his purpose? All of us would wonder, well, how do I know if I'm called according to his purpose? How can I know? You know it because you love God. So both of them are necessary. You see, being called according to his purpose, that's the cause. Loving God, that's the effect. There's a cause and effect here. You need both of these to describe the people. One is the divine activity, calling according to his purpose. One is the human response and the human uh, emotion, the human will acting out in response to God's work. That's loving God. So God calls, we love. God calls, we love. So there's a subjective human side, we love God. There's an objective divine side. We're called. How do we know the promise won't fail? What a promise. God's working all things together for good, but how do we know that that won't fail? 
Well, you say, well, it's in the Bible, and the Bible won't tell lies, so we know it won't fail. But let's just set that one aside for now. We know it won't fail because it's based on God's work. It's based on God's call. It's based on God's purpose. It's not based entirely or even even half on, on our fickle subject will and our ability to love God back. It's based on God's purpose, which evokes love for him. So God's call has brought into our, our life this love for God, and God's call is going to cause us to continue so that this promise is true eternally for us. The key to the success of Romans 8.28 is not you, it's God. God starts that. He initiates it. Let's meditate on this phrase, those who are called according to his purpose. First of all, what does the Bible mean when it talks about God's purpose? Let's think on that. God's purpose. Before we get to the call, let's just think about the purpose of God. Let's look at several other passages which throw light on this phrase, the purpose of God. If you just change, uh, turn your, a page in your Bible to Romans chapter 9, let's read verses 10 to 13, because this will tell us something about God's purpose. In Romans 9.10, it says, Not only this, but there was Rebekah also, when she had conceived twins by one man, our father Isaac. For though the twins were not yet born, and had not done anything good or bad, so that God's purpose, according to his choice, would stand. Not because of works, but because of him who calls. It was said to her, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now, folks, there is a ton of deep stuff here. First of all, notice that God's call is linked with his purpose in verse 11. It's also linked with his choice. It says here, they hadn't done anything good or bad so that God's purpose according to his choice. So the purpose of God is according to the choice of God. And the purpose of God is linked with his call. That's what it says in verse 11 at the end. Now, here we're talking about two twins, Jacob and Esau. Esau was the older. Jacob was, let's see, Jacob, Esau was the firstborn. Jacob was the secondborn. So Esau was the older one. And the way the custom was amongst Jews at that time is that the older one was always the preeminent one. He received a double portion of the inheritance. The younger one never was the preeminent one. The younger one was never the one that the older one served. But God made a sovereign decision that that's the way it was going to be in Jacob and Esau's life. Esau was going to serve Jacob. Jacob was going to be preeminent. Jacob was going to be the one through whom Messiah would come, not Esau. In fact, he's going to love Jacob and he's going to hate Esau, according to verse 13. We won't get into that because that's a... <laughs> yeah, we'll set that aside for now. But anyways... I think you can see that the purpose of God is linked with the choice of God and it's linked with the call of God. It distinguishes. It makes sovereign choices and decisions. All right, let's go over to Ephesians 1.11. Ephesians 1.11 throws light on Romans 8.28 as well. Paul says there, we have obtained an inheritance, 
having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Now, why do all things work together for good? Because God is working all things after the counsel of his will. Right? You see how those two relate? But let's think about his purpose. We have obtained an inheritance. How? Well, it's because we have been predestined according to his purpose. And that purpose is, uh, is linked with God working all things after the counsel of his will to the end that we who are the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. So again, God's purpose is linked with his predestined plan, according to verse 11. And it also um, produces his will. It brings to pass his will. God's purpose brings to pass the counsel of his own will. Okay, one more. 2 Timothy 1.9. 2 Timothy 1.9. Paul says, That God has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was granted us in Christ Jesus from all eternity. So here we have the purpose of God again. The purpose, he said, was granted us from all eternity. So the purposes of God are not something new that he kind of he's reacting to this or reacting to that. They were set in motion from eternity past. God had a purpose of grace towards us. That purpose of grace comes to us in Christ Jesus and it is planned from all eternity. This purpose of grace has nothing to do with our works, according to verse 9. It's not according to works. It's according to his grace. So if we put these things together, when, when the Bible talks about the purpose of God, it's not um, something wishy-washy or flimsy or something that may or may not happen. It's rock-solid bedrock that you can base your life upon that doesn't waver, that doesn't change. It's a purpose determined from eternity past that will take us on into eternity future. It's a purpose that can't fail. It's a person, a purpose that will bring to pass the will of God. It's a purpose linked with predestination. It's a purpose linked with the calling of God. Okay, so those are the things we learn about the purpose of God. Now let's go back to Romans 8 and think about this part. He says, to those who are called according to that purpose. The purpose of God for his people is spelled out for us in verse 29 and 30. It's to be conformed to the image of his son and it's to be brought to glory. That's God's purpose for his church. But in order for us to obtain that purpose, we have to be called. Right? Who are called according to that purpose of sharing in everlasting glory. Now, what is this call that he's talking about? Well, it gets a little confusing because sometimes the Bible speaks about the call of God in two different senses. Sometimes it's speaking about an outward call and sometimes about an inward call. Let me show you what I mean. In Matthew 22, verse 14, Jesus tells a parable about a wedding feast. And he talks about those who are invited to the feast 
One guy shows up without the, the right garments. Um, he's cast out because he's not wearing the right wedding clothes. And at the very end of that parable, Jesus says, many are called, but few are chosen. Now, in that context, many are called is talking about many are invited. Many are given the offer of being invited to this wedding. It's an outward call. And whenever a preacher preaches the gospel, he's issuing an outer call, an outward call. The problem with the outward call is that it's not always heeded. In fact, most of the time it's not. Like, if I were to preach the gospel to a, a group of unbelievers and one person accepted it, probably 99 would refuse it. People have the ability and the power to walk away and to ignore and to reject an outward call, an invitation only. But actually, when you go through the rest of the New Testament, this kind of call is very rare. Most of the time when we read about a call of God in the New Testament, especially in the epistles, the letters, it's talking about an inward call. It's talking about an effective call. Let me show you a few passages that make that clear. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 1. And this kind of call is far different than just an invitation that you can accept or reject at will. It's far different. 1 Corinthians 1, 22. For indeed, Jews ask for signs. Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. Now, here's how people react to him preaching Christ crucified. The Jews react to that. Oh, that's a stumbling block. Christ crucified is a stumbling block. Gentiles react to it. Ah, oh, that's just foolishness. So here's the preaching of the gospel. The preacher issues a call. Come to Christ. That's foolishness. That's a stumbling block. But wait a minute. We're not at the end of the story. We didn't read verse 24 yet. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. Most people think he's foolish or he's a stumbling block, but there is a, a group within the Greeks and within the Jews that don't see him as foolishness and don't see him as a stumbling block. They see Christ as the power of God and the wisdom of God. Why? Because they're called. And the called here is not just an invitation because that comes up in verse 23. He preaches Christ crucified. There is an invitation. They all reject it. But there's another kind of call that goes along with the outward call. It's an inward call that changes a man on the inside so that he responds. What happens is his eyes are open to see something that he's never seen before. He sees the glory and the beauty of Christ that becomes irresistible to him. And he comes. Let me show you that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. I think I'm getting ahead of myself, aren't I? Okay, I'll save that one. Let's, let's save that one. I'll just mention Acts 16, 14. Pastor Jerome mentioned this one last week. But when Paul is preaching to the, uh, to the Jews, there's a group of women there. Lydia is among them. And it says that the Lord opened up her heart to respond to the things spoken of by Paul. She's called inwardly. Her heart is opened. God opens up the heart. Brothers and sisters, if you have ever had your heart opened to the gospel, it's not because you did it. <laughs> the Lord did it to, for you and to you. The Lord called you in a way that other people have not been called. He has 
opened your eyes to see Jesus in a way that other people don't. They see more glory in a $1 bill than they do in the face of Jesus Christ, but you see the, the value and the beauty in your Savior. God did that. You didn't do it. Oh, also 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter tells us about this call too. I'm sorry, it's 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and 10. He says, but you are a chosen race. You are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. See, this call that Peter's talking about is a call that can actually take people and bring them out of darkness and put them into light. It's the call of Colossians chapter 1 where he says, we've been translated out of the kingdom of darkness, the domain of darkness, and set down into the kingdom of God's dear son. It's a call that is effectual. What I mean by that is it effects what God intends for it to effect. It brings about the desired result. It's not just an invitation. It's not just an offer that we can willy-nilly refuse if we want to. It's a call that brings about God's plan and God's purpose. So Paul says, this promise, this glorious promise I'm telling you about is true for those that God has called according to his purpose, his eternal sweeping plan to bring them, to unite them to Jesus Christ forever and to glorify them. For those people that have been called according to that purpose, this promise is absolutely true. All things work together for their good. I once heard a story about a boy who wanted to join a church. And so the pastor asked him how he got saved. And this boy says, well, God did his part and I did my part. So the pastor said, well, okay, what was God's part and what's your part? He said, God's part was the saving and my part was the sinning. I done run from him as fast as my sinful heart would take me. He done took after, out after me till he run me down. <laughs> He's talking about the call there. God, run him down. Remember in Philippians 3, it says that uh, Paul describes his conversion and he says, God apprehended me. In fact, it, that's not exactly the words, but God turned him around is what he says. Let me find it for you. Philippians chapter 3. Laid hold of. He says, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. When God calls a man, he lays hold of him. He says, you're mine. You're not going to live for sin anymore. You're not going to live for the devil. You're mine from now on. He lays hold of him, turns him around, and that man begins to follow. Oh my, there's so much I could say about this call, but I, I hope you get the point. This is something that is powerful. It's effective. It never fails. When God calls a man, that man will irresistibly come to Christ. Okay, so what does it mean to love God? We've talked about what is, what is the call? What is the purpose of God? Well, what does it mean to love God? Many say it's exactly the same thing as keeping God's commandments. And they get this from John 14, 15. Jesus said, he who loves me will keep my commandments. And that's absolutely true. But I would not equate those as being the same thing. 
Keeping the commandments of God is the fruit of loving God. It's the result of loving God. But loving God is not keeping commands. Because if we were to go out and tell everybody, you need to love God so that this promise of Romans 8.28 is good for you, we could produce a bunch of hypocrites who are all trying to be moral, who are all trying to keep the law. See, genuine love for God produces obedience, but love for God is, is a little different than that. Love for God has to do with me esteeming God or valuing God or cherishing God or revering God or desiring God or treasuring God or delighting in God. It's the reflex of the heart to the beauty of Christ. Not reflex, the reflex. <laughs> F-L-E-X. The reflex of the heart to an unveiling of the beauty of God. Now, where do I get that? I get it from 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And this is what I wanted to show you earlier. To me, this makes it super clear about what happens in a man's conversion. When a person is born again, love for God fills his soul. As a result of the new birth, he repents, he obeys, he believes, he loves. There's a response from this new life that God implants within him. And that's what we find happening in 2 Corinthians 4. Look at verse 4. Well, let's start in verse 3. He says, Even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they may, might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of God, who is the image of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Okay, so. Verse 4, what is true about the unbelieving according to this passage? It says their minds are blinded, right? Who's done that? Who's caused their minds to be blinded? Yeah, the God of this world. Jesus called Satan the prince of the power of the air, the, the prince of this, of this darkness. Satan is at work bringing a blinding effect to people's lives. Their minds are blinded to the gospel, to the, well, it tells us what here, what they're blinded to, the gospel of the glory of Christ. They might intellectually understand the gospel, but they're blind to the glory of the gospel of Christ. When I talk about glory, I mean the beauty, the, how do you describe glory? It's such a hard word to define. <laughs> the radiance, the beauty, the wonder of the gospel. But let's keep reading. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, light shall shine out of darkness. Remember in Genesis 1? Let there be light. Okay? That's the one who is shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. So we at one time were blinded. Our minds were blinded. We were unbelieving. Something happened so that we were no longer unbelievers. Well, what was it? God shone in our hearts, verse 6. To do what? To give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. That's what I mean when I say God takes the blinders off and you see Jesus for who he is and you can't help but run into his arms. 
because there's nothing else that even compares with him. Nothing in the world even comes close. There's, there's nothing that is of value that even comes close to Christ. And so you, you go to him. A, a wild team of horses couldn't keep you away. I mean, you, you would cross mountain and valley and desert to get to him because you see the beauty that's in Christ. That's the call. That's what it is to be called according to his purpose. God lets you see Jesus. You see him. And when you see him, you come. So what is the community of this promise? It's God's own people. It's his church. It's, this is talking about a promise made to Christians, real Christians, not just professing people who have a nominal faith and name only, but people who really possess genuine faith in Jesus Christ. And how do you know if you have it? You love God. A natural man doesn't love God. He may love a God of his own imagination, a God who loves him regardless of what he does or what he's like, doesn't require anything of him. You know, we create all of these images of the God we want to exist. But the God of the Bible, to love the God revealed in Scripture, that is a fruit of the new birth. That's a fruit of the calling of God upon your life. And if God has changed your heart and given you new life, you love this God. You can't help it because <laughs> you see his beauty. You can't help but love him. So that's the community. Now, what does Romans 8.28 mean for all of us as Christians practically? And I spent time thinking about this. And I thought, wow, the, this promise is powerful. If we really believe Romans 8.28, there are certain things we can do and there are certain things that we can refrain from doing. Let me tell you what I mean. If we believe Romans 8.28, we can rejoice always. You know what I mean? Because I don't care what's happening in my life. It's working for my good. I ought to be rejoicing, right? I can also give thanks in everything. These are biblical commands. 1 Thessalonians 5.16. I'm commanded to rejoice in everything. Not just the pleasant things. Well, how can I do that? Because I know God's working those hard things for my good. Thank you, Lord. I rejoice. I give thanks to you because you're doing something great in my life right now, even though it doesn't feel great. But I know you're doing it. See, by faith we rejoice. By faith we give thanks. I can also be content. 1 Timothy 6, 8 says, If we have food and covering, with these things we shall be content. I can be content because... <laughs> All these things, even if I, if, if I have a small, crummy house, or if I have a low-paying job, or if I have this or that that it's, I don't think is very good, it doesn't really matter because those things God is using for my good. I can also have peace in my life. Rather than being stressed out all the time, I can have peace because all those stressful things, hey, God's working them for my good. So why don't I just chill out and just, hey, trust God and don't worry about things. Hey, Lord, you're working this for my good. I'm trying to apply this to my own life because <laughs> I just found out I've got one employee who's got an excruciating back pain 
And I don't know if he's coming to work Monday. I've got another one who's got an excruciating toothache, and he needs to go probably have a tooth pulled, and I don't know if he's coming in on Monday. I have another guy who just fell off a rock at the river, and he sprained his ankle, and he's not coming in until Thursday. And I've got a full week of work. We can, there's no way we'll get it all done with three employees out. I'm thinking, okay, Lord, you're working this together for my good. Whatever. You know, I'm just going to trust you, Lord. I'm not going not to get stressed out and bummed out because it's for my good. God's doing something good in me right now, even if I can't say, quiet, God is at work. <laughs> and there's also things that we can refrain from if we believe this promise. We can refrain from complaining. Philippians 2.14 says, do all things without grumbling and disputing. How often do we complain? I don't like this. I don't like the weather. I don't like this person. I don't like that situation. Well, wait a minute. If God is using the weather and that person and that situation in my life for my good, why should I be complaining about it? <laughs> you know, I have no reason to complain. I also can refrain from sinful anger and bitterness because those situations in my life that hurt when someone does something that I don't like to me, that I get angry about, well, wait a minute. God's using that. God's working that together for good. Okay, well, if that's true, I'm not going to lash out. I'm just going to be thankful that the Lord's doing good work right now. I don't have to blow my temper and, and say things I regret later. I can respond in meekness and humility and with the love of Christ. I can also refrain from being offended. How often we get offended by things people do to us or say about us. Well, wait a minute. That thing that they did, God's working it for my good. This isn't just hocus-pocus, wishful thinking. This is actually true. <laughs> this actually, God is doing this. And so this isn't, I, you know, if I wish hard enough, maybe I can not get offended. No, it's not like that. This is actually true, so I can respond this way. I also don't need to take revenge. And I also don't need to be impatient, which is my sin. I am such an impatient person. I, <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm a work in progress. My employees know that. <laughs> and I'm trying to be patient. But anyway, so I'm, t I'm talking to myself. I don't have to be impatient. I want to get this done. But even if it doesn't, okay, even that, God's going to work that for my good. I don't have to worry about things. I don't have to be offended. I don't have to be impatient. I don't have to take revenge. I don't have to complain. I can rejoice always. I can give thanks in everything. I can be content with what I have. I can be at peace with all men. Simply on the power of Romans 8.28. Do you see the power, the transformative power in this promise? That's why I say it's the Christian's greatest promise. So what I want to encourage you, exhort you to do, is if you haven't, memorized this verse. It won't take you long. And tell it to yourself when you wake up each day. And we know, and I know, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. Do I have reason to believe I've been called according to His purpose? Do I love God? Yes, I love God. I love you, Lord. Okay, then I know that whatever happens today, Lord, you're going to be working that together for my good. Now, that's powerful. <laughs> and I want to encourage you, take that to heart each day. Let the Word of God wash over you with power to make you like Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for this promise. We, it's, it's hard to believe that such a great promise 
has been given to us in your word. And we rejoice in it, Lord. We pray that it would root out all the sinful attitudes and affections within our heart and that in, in place of those things, godly virtues would flower and bud and produce fruit. In Jesus' name, amen.